Taking a page from history and using it to shield ourselves from the sun, it's episode 11 of Touching Bass, a podcast from Baseball Softball UK. I'm Luke Stott. It's 80 years since England became surprise winners of the inaugural Baseball World Cup, held in 1938 on home soil. Baseball Softball UK is celebrating this event all week with special World Cup-themed content available on our website and social media. Here to take us through the events leading up to this little-known part of UK baseball history is historian and former GB international Josh Chetwin, who some viewers will know from his work on Channel 5's baseball coverage in the early noughties. Together we talk about the origins of what was known at the time as the International Test Series, who the star players were, and how the event became known as the World Cup. This is the Touching Base Podcast, and it begins right now. So I'm joined now by Josh Chapman, who comes to us all the way from Denver, Colorado. So thank you very much for joining us, Josh. Uh, it's my pleasure, Luke. Nice to speak with you. So I was wondering if we could just start off, before we start talking about the uh, the inaugural World Cup, uh, if you could give us a bit of a biography of yourself for our listeners that maybe aren't familiar with your work in on television in the UK. Sure. Well, I actually first got involved with uh, British baseball in 1996. Uh, I played baseball uh, at the Division I university level in the U.S. at a school called Northwestern in the Big Ten, then played a year of uh, minor league baseball after that. And I was born in London and found out, uh, thankfully, the BBF at the time had uh, was an early adopter of the Internet. And uh, I saw their website and wrote them and said, look, I, you know, I'm a dual dual nationality citizen, and uh, just interested in what kind of baseball you have there, because like many in the U.S., I was unaware of it at the time. And uh, they said, we have a national team, and we're actually hosting the European B-Pool Championships in Hull and Hessel uh, that summer, and they asked me whether I wanted to come out and play. And so I played for the national team. We won the B-Pool Championships, and I played for a decade uh, as a member of the GB national team, uh, primarily as a catcher until uh, got injured and then played first base at the end of my career. Uh, I Through that experience and playing with players who were uh, born and raised in the UK, guys like uh, Gavin Marshall, a uh, number of other players uh, from that era. So after playing for uh, the Great Britain national team, I felt a great desire to get more involved with the development of uh, baseball in the UK. And so I left my job as a journalist. I was uh, working as a reporter for USA Today uh, and came over uh, to uh, live in London. I worked for Major League Baseball as a communications executive and then ultimately got a position co-hosting and serving as uh, the analyst for Channel 5's uh, baseball show. And I did that for a number of years, um, pretty much from 2002 with a small break where I came back to the U.S. and got a law degree uh, and then came back and uh, did it until the show was canceled in 2008 and then continued to broadcast baseball in the uh, U.K. market for uh, BBC, BBC Five Live Sports Extra for a number of years. And I still do some stuff for, for talk sport. I know that's probably far more than you wanted, Luke, but uh, <laughs> those are the basis uh, for... I also played in the, the, the National League there, the Domestic National League, 
uh, from 2002 off and on through 2008. And I started the London Mets uh, senior side and we won national championship in the first two years there. And then the following year I played for the Bracknell Blazers in the one year that they won national championship. Right, I see. So you're fully integrated into the British uh, baseball scene. Um, was that uh, once you finished your playing career and moved more into reporting on the sport, was that um, the spur uh, for you to start looking at the history of uh, British baseball? I actually started when I, I first moved uh, to the UK and was living in London and working uh, for Major League Baseball. And one of the points I made when we were discussing how to bring attention to baseball in the UK was that very, very few people were aware of its long and pretty illustrious history. And I know we're about to talk about uh, the first World C Cup in 1938, but it, pretty much no one knew about that. And I, I made the argument that there was value in mining that history, understanding that history. And I thought it was very important for people who were playing to understand that they weren't really reinventing the wheel. And I, I still see that when I talk, see you know, social media from some people who are just getting involved uh, with uh, baseball in the UK, that they, they think that this is something new to the country, uh, which it most certainly uh, is not. Uh, but I am gratified to see more and more uh, teams uh, you know, there's a team in Derby that just recently started up and I saw they were posting something on Twitter and they were very aware of Derby's long history of, of, of baseball. Um, I, you know, the baseball grounds helps for that. But I, I think it's gotten better. But that was the reason I first got involved. And that was uh, 2001, 2002. And then I got approached uh, by a, a gentleman by the name of Brian Belton, who uh, was an expert uh, on the history of West Ham United uh, and really the West Ham neighborhood and all the sports that, that occurred in that part of London and asked whether I was interested in collaborating on a book about uh, a period of time where there was professional baseball that actually was right before the World Cup in 1938 uh, and, and to write about that. And I said, let's do that in the context of discussing British baseball uh, broadly and its history. And he agreed to do that. And that was the first book I wrote and uh, I co-wrote it with Brian. It was called uh, British Baseball in the West Ham Club. And um, yeah, from there, I just kind of continued. I wrote a, a second book on baseball in Europe, uh, moved on to write about a number of other things. I've written seven books now total, uh, but those were the first two I wrote and they were both focused uh, first on British baseball and then on baseball in Europe in general. Ah, fascinating. Uh, little known fact, I was born and grew up about a mile from West Ham Football Stadium. Um, so that'd be something I'd be interested in finding out is the um, the history of baseball, particularly in that part of London as well. Um, but uh, moving on uh, to today, we're going to talk about the the World Cup, the 1938 World Cup, which um, the International Baseball Federation subsequently named the World Cup after the fact and bestows the title of world champions onto the England team. So I was wondering if you could uh, set the stage for that. Uh, what prompted this, um, this to come about uh, initially? Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, the story really needs to start a little bit before 1933 uh, because there were a lot of moving parts that led to this World Cup. And the first and probably the most important from the British side was John Moores, who anyone from Liverpool will be familiar with him. Obviously, there's a mm. uni named after him, and uh, uh, he owned the Everton uh, Football Club for, or was the chairman of the Everton Football Club for, for quite a long time. 
Um, but he first made his mark uh, on the British landscape running the Little Woods football pools. It was you know, a form of gambling uh, back in the 1930s. And he was a very successful businessman, and he would travel quite a bit. And uh, the story goes, at least the New York Times reported back in 1936, that he was going on a around-the-world cruise, and he stopped in the United States and got his first taste of baseball. Now, clearly he was a sporting uh, person. He had created a lot of uh, recreational opportunities in the greater Liverpool area. But when he saw baseball, he became smitten. And he had the opportunity on that trip in 1933, uh, or right before 33, I don't know the exact dates of it, uh, but to meet John Heidler, who was the uh, president of the National League. And they uh, got up to chatting and John Heidler uh, gave him a challenge, gave Moores a challenge to start baseball, a National Baseball Association in the UK. Uh, and if he did so, that Heidler would pay for the trophy for it. So uh, Moores came back and he uh, attacked this opportunity with great aplomb, uh, got a number of teams on an amateur side to get involved with baseball uh, in 1933. Uh, there was already what we now call Welsh baseball, but was English baseball then, which was sort of a step uh, removed from rounders, but not quite the baseball by the American code. I uh, got a number of teams there to switch over. Anyway, started the whole process of baseball. He would get increasingly ambitious. In 1935, he would start his first professional league, uh, the North of England Baseball League. Uh, he would then start two more in 1936, one in London and one uh, in Yorkshire. And so he really developed baseball and a number of the players in those first three years in, um, well, really first 35, 36 and 37 were uh, Canadians and Americans who had been brought over uh, from, from the North American continent. So that's a, a one important half to this story is that he was starting baseball. He was creating the groundwork uh, and sort of the foundation for the type of players who could play on a national team or a national side and represent England, uh, even though those players weren't uh, British per se. Clearly, uh, they were part of the Commonwealth, uh, the Dominion, as Canada was uh, you know, known, and so they were part of the greater British Empire. So that was one side of it. On the American side, the reason this developed was primarily due to a guy by the name of Leslie Mann. Uh, Leslie Mann was a player himself. He was uh, best known in his playing days for hitting in the game-winning run uh, to win the 1914 World Series for the Boston Braves. Uh, he would go on to be a coach, and he was a, a bit of an iconoclast. He was a bit of a rebel. Uh, he had fought for a, a league that was going to be a, a renegade league from the major leagues um, at one point when he was a player. It ended up not working out, but you could see that he was always sort of forward-thinking and different. Uh, and one of his big interests was creating international baseball. He wasn't the first to do so. A.G. Spalding obviously had been very involved uh, in that previously. And there's a whole earlier history of British baseball that involves Spalding. But Mann was uh, interested enough and he got to know uh, John Moores and actually helped supply a number of players for, for those leagues uh, that I had mentioned, the professional leagues in the UK. Uh, but one other thing he was doing on the side is that he really wanted to get uh, baseball involved uh, on the international stage via the Olympics. And uh, so the first step that he did in order to make that occur was 1936, the Olympic Games in Berlin. He put together a Olympic team to show baseball as a demonstration sport. And uh, they went over to Berlin. Uh, it was considered the one of, if not the largest, one of the largest viewed games ever. It was an exhibition game between uh, 
sort of a split squad of that U.S. team. Originally, there were going to be multiple teams, uh, but it ultimately uh, just was uh, the split squad. Uh, it was relatively well received. And, and when they completed that team, which was made up primarily of college players or guys from Stanford uh, University, a number of other big uh, universities, uh, that team then went over to the U.K. in 1936 and played a couple of exhibition games. Uh, one against uh, the West Ham team that I had mentioned, in which mm -hmm. West Ham actually beat that U.S. team. Uh, and then one against a team from White City. White City was actually the top team in London in that 1936 season, uh, and the U.S. team beat them. So that was all the, 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 the framework and the starting point for what happened in 1938. Uh, you had now had uh, you know, a solid baseball history over a handful of years in the U.K., and you had a U.S. Uh, program, international program, that was starting. Leslie Mann was all keen to uh, push baseball into the 1940 games that were meant to occur in Tokyo. Obviously, there were geopolitical factors that were uh, ultimately scuttled those Olympics uh, in 1940, uh, what we know as World War II. But uh, in 1938, there was still an expectation that those games were going to occur. And in preparation for that, Leslie Mann put together a tour. Uh, the tour was going to start in England and ultimately, and it did start in England, play uh, a England representative side. And then after that, play a few other exhibition games and then go to Belgium, France, Italy, and Holland, which it did. So this was meant to just be a tour and a, a kind of tune-up event uh, in, in preparation for those 1940 games. The team came over, and it was a reasonably good side. I would think the 1936 team was probably marginally better. But what you can say about that 1938 U.S. side is they had two players uh, in um, Mizell Platt and Mike Shermer, uh, Shemmer, who both went on to play in the major leagues. So you had two future major leaguers uh, on mm -hmm. that U.S. team. Uh, and they came over and played a series of, of five games against a uh, representative England side that was effectively a Canadian team. Um, but all of them wore, you know, the Union Jack on their, their jerseys. All of them, for the most part, uh, not all of them, but the majority of them had played in these professional leagues that I had mentioned. So they were, uh, had played at a reasonably high level. They were very talented players. And uh, it ended up leading to that series, which was a five-game series, won by England, four games to one. Sure. And I think there's a couple of things that are probably worth picking up there is that these were at least semi-professional players. Um, there were professionalized leagues operating in the UK at that time, um, which seems a world away from what we have today. Um, and one of those was the Yorkshire Lancashire League. Was that right? In 1935, 36, and 37, it was effectively a fully professional league. Pretty much all the players uh, were being paid. Uh, as mentioned, in the first year in 35, it was just the one league, the North of England League. And then it, they ramped it up to three leagues. What had happened at the end of the 1937 season is that Moores and the other people who were pushing baseball realized that it was getting far too uh, flung in terms of the amount of talent uh, that was out there. And the second issue that they were very concerned about was that these leagues were being completely dominated by import players. And it was just a rush to see which best players you could get. So those leagues all closed down after the 1937 year. And in 1938, the league did roll back into being semi-professional. And what I mean by that is that each team in the Yorkshire-Lancaster Lancaster League 
um, were uh, teams that were allowed to have a couple of imports who were paid players and the rest of the players were meant to be British. And the purpose there was to try and jumpstart or improve the British talent so that they wouldn't be so reliant. So 1938 was an interesting year in terms of this snapshot of baseball in Great Britain because it was uh, sort of a transitional year towards British players. That said, the England team was really made up of all those kind of import players uh, who could represent England who were Canadian. Sure. And uh, one of those uh, was a gentleman by the name of Ross Kendrick. Uh, and I believe you wrote the chapter on him in the book Nine Aces and a Joker. Uh, and I was wondering if you could give us a bit of a rundown on Ross Kendrick and why he made such an impact in that particular series. Yeah, Kendrick is a really interesting character in the history of British baseball. He's been inducted into the British Baseball Hall of Fame and was dominant in this event. He threw the first game of the series and uh, threw a two-hit shutout with 16 strikeouts in a 3-0 win for England. Uh, big curveball pitcher. Uh, he was from Ontario. But what was so compelling about him was actually his off-field story, which is he had come to England a year or two before to play as a professional player. He left his family and then never came back, never spoke to his family uh, in uh, Canada again, and just started his life over again. And uh, I got in touch with uh, his lost family a handful of years ago, uh, and told them the story. They had sort of known that, that, that they had had a, it was, I think, believe uh, his granddaughter had known that, uh, that Ross had gone over there, but didn't really realize the impact he had had because Kendrick would go on and play 40 years uh, in the UK, primarily in the Birmingham area, and uh, was such a fixture on the scene, a tremendous player, uh, not just in this series, but beyond. Um, but obviously had this past that even people who were friends with him here weren't really familiar with. So interesting character, amazing pitcher, very talented player. He could hit too. He was hitting in the uh, Yorkshire Lancaster League. Um, his batting average was like 370, but he was primarily a pitcher and he was the ace of that event, winning uh, two of the four victories that uh, England got in that World Cup. Yeah. For sure. And so he, he would have been, if there were MVPs being given around for this uh, international test series, he would have been it. Yeah, I believe so. I mean, the whole team played incredibly well uh, throughout. Uh, there was talent uh, through Jerry Strong, who's a player who played uh, in London and moved up to the north, uh, performed very well as a, a pitcher and a hitter. The team was just a strong group of Canadian players who were older than the American team they were playing and, and more seasoned. And uh, as a result, they came into an environment uh, that would be somewhat surprising to British fans today, where that first game uh, that was played in, I believe it was played in uh, Liverpool, uh, Wavertree mm -hmm. Stadium, yeah. uh, got 10,000 fans. I mean, there were 10,000 fans there. There were 5,000 fans in another game. I mean, there were large crowds uh, who came to most of these games. And uh, despite the pressure of being the home team in front of these huge crowds, uh, they performed incredibly well throughout the series. Yeah. And that's crazy when you think about it. That's 10,000 fans in Liverpool before an era of mass transit. Um, you know, there weren't motorways that you can jump up and down on. And, uh, you know, cars weren't ubiquitous. And to get that amount of people in one place then um, is incredible. And I've looked through um, the five-game series. We, they played games in Liverpool, Hull, Rochdale, Halifax and Leeds. And I think there was only one um, where you had around 1,000 
people turn up. But all the others, it was 5,000 uh, and above, which yep. is an incredible number for that time, that time period. Yeah, and keep in mind, the last game which was played in Leeds was a rain-shortened game. So it was clearly mm. uh, unwelcoming weather, and you still got out uh, a large uh, number for that. But that was reflective of I, I you know, baseball at, during that very small window was a minor sport, but much larger than perhaps it is today in terms of um, interest in playing it and developing it. And one of the reasons for that is that John Moores had put a considerable amount of sterling behind uh, the development of the sport uh, and definitely had created a level of interest uh, through the professional piece and then through this semi-professional league. So, you know, I think if you had to walk down the street in, in Liverpool in 1938 or Hull particularly, which really caught into baseball and has such a, a, a really rich history of baseball, people would have known that there was baseball in town. You know, it'd be a little more hard pressed now uh, in some of those towns, uh, you know, where baseball does occur to get that same sort of uh, understanding. But it, there was definitely a, a critical mass during that, that period. Yeah, definitely. And overseeing all of this was the International Baseball Federation um, at the time. And I was wondering, because uh, when this series took place, it was billed as the international test series between the US team and England. And it was only later on that it was retconned, if you like, into the World Cup uh, by the IBF. Uh, and I was just wondering if you could shed some light on why that decision was made. You know, that decision has been lost to history. And uh, Ian Smythe, who uh, was really one of the first people to do some really good research on this, uh, in an article that he wrote, he sort of intimated that the fact that England won probably was one of the spurs for this because it was a nice marketing ploy to say, hey, the first world champion in baseball isn't what you think. It's not America. It's not Cuba. It's not even someone in Asia or Latin America. It's England. Uh, and it was an intention getter. I don't know if that's true. And, and maybe I'm even reading between the lines on what Ian wrote. Uh, but it makes sense to me that it would be a sort of an interesting conversation starter uh, and a reason to pay attention uh, to strike it as such. Yeah, I mean, I have, a, I'm looking at my wall right now and I have a frame, the first test match a program framed on my wall and it's just uh, reflected as first test match England versus America and all the other programs say the same thing. So there was no expectation that there was going to be, you know, a trophy hoisted at the end of, of these games at the time they occurred. Yeah, for sure. And I imagine if this happened now, there would be seismic shocks going all the way around the sport. But at the time, um, your communication isn't what it is today for obvious reasons. Uh, but I was wondering, what is the American reaction? What was the American reaction at the time when this occurred? And furthermore, when this is brought up in American culture more recently, what's the reaction to it? Well, I think, I think it, it was muted if it even existed. Because again, these games were just seen as part of a series of exhibition games that this American team were uh, involved in in preparation for 1940. So perhaps the scores were mentioned, but there wasn't, I don't think, any uh, real focus uh, on performance or on what the implication might be. In terms of if you brought up today, I think you'd get an eyebrow raise. But keep in mind that the structure of, of baseball is really circulates less around the international community than it does around Major League Baseball and what goes on there. And the gripe I always heard when I was working on Channel 5 
um, is, oh, they call it the World Series, but it's, you know, all the teams but one are from the U.S., uh, which I always sort of, uh, I'm bothered by that for a number of reasons. First, uh, the reason it was called the World Series, or at least one argument that it was, uh, and it was a term coined by A.G. Spalding, was because there were hopes that it would become a World Series. So it was more of an aspirational term. And secondly, whereas the teams are all located primarily in the U.S., with the exception of the Toronto Blue Jays, uh, the leagues are incredibly uh, integrated. It, it's the best players from around the world. They happen to play in the U.S. Hmm. But, but all that said, I think that if you told someone about it, they would say, oh, international baseball. They might not get as worked up about it as you would hope they would um, by sort of uh, surprising them uh, in that fact. And I remember I wrote a story for the Observer Sport Monthly when I was uh, working for Major League Baseball about this series. And I remember they were incredibly surprised by it. So, you know, I think even today, uh, a lot of people in uh, – the UK and England uh, and GB, depending on how you want to slice it up, um, all, all uh, would be somewhat surprised by that fact too. For sure. And can we trace the DNA of uh, this, the World Cup um, as it as it became in 1938 through to what the WBC is now? Is it are we able to draw a line? Uh, hereditary line between those two things? Well, I mean, certainly the, the current governing body for international baseball uh, recognizes this. And that alone suggests you could draw a line because if they felt that this was something outside of, of their you know, jurisdiction, they probably would have pushed it aside. But, you know, there have been numerous different governing bodies in different formats uh, in different ways that they have hosted these type of World Cup tournaments that they've all been slightly different. They've been, you know, single series like this all the way towards the type of qualifying events. You know, the World Cup has gone by the wayside uh, and replaced by uh, the World Baseball Classic. Uh, you know, there are often ways in which uh, international baseball is trying to both bring attention and, and refocus uh, into the international game uh, to remind people in the, the bigger baseball countries that baseball is absolutely played throughout the world and, and played with, you know, uh, the same level of enthusiasm, enthusiasm and gusto, uh, but often with a slightly different culture uh, than the way it's played in America or, or Latin America or Asia. Yeah, and we've definitely seen that in the most recent WBC. That it's the it's the celebration, it, it's the clashes of cultures that actually are what complement uh, the sport, um, which sort of highlights that it is this uh, global sport rather than a uniquely North American thing. Um, so, thank you very much for joining us uh, today to discuss the World Cup as part of our coverage, uh, celebrating the 80th anniversary of the World Cup and uh, we'll hopefully speak to you soon. Uh, thanks a lot, Luke. Pleasure chatting thanks. with you. If you're interested in reading more about England and the Baseball World Cup, you can find more coverage on our website, www.baseballsoftballuk.com. You can follow us on Twitter by searching for BSUK, and if you're interested in playing our sport, simply go to baseballsoftballuk.com forward slash play to find out more. Thanks for listening and we'll be back soon with episode 12.